Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. This is Tom Salami, your host. We are one day past the MedTech conference. We had it yesterday at the Lowe's Minneapolis Hotel. It was a fantastic event. Uh, 300 uh, of really of the movers and shakers and leaders in MedTech. Happy to have uh, such a, a robust uh, collection of MedTech folks. Uh, opened up the day with an interview between Stacy Enzingseng and Jeff Martha of Medtronic. We'll have that content, that interview, uh, both written and video on our MedTech Conference uh, website. It'll be coming up next week, so stay tuned for that. We'll start posting content daily, so uh, keep visiting back, and, uh, and, and you'll, you'll hear what happened there if you were one of the unfortunate few who did not attend. Uh, one of the panels we had that we will bring to you right now was uh, ro- a panel I did on robotics technology. Uh, I had Eric Timko, formerly of Blue Belt, uh, Paul Laviolette from SV and uh, chairman of Transenterics, and John Pavlidis of uh, Vitronus. We talked about where robotics is and where it's going. There's a lot of activity uh, from the strategics in this space to the point where one might argue that it's not a uh, emerging technology. And I tried to make that argument and was summarily slapped down by the uh, the gentleman on the stage. So. Hope you enjoy this quick glimpse of what happened yesterday at the Lowe's Minneapolis Hotel at the MedTech Conference. And again, keep uh, checking medtechconference.com for our updated content. So uh, I'm going to say welcome to the podcast. You can say thanks for having me. What an honor to talk to you, Tom. Whatever you want to say, something like that. You know. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. What an honor to be here, Tom. <laughs> this is the highlight of my life. John. Thank you for having me as well. It's my pleasure. Now, one gentleman on the, on the panel. So we're talking about uh, robotics, and it's, when, you, when you say medical robotics, it almost sounds like a, an emerging technology, but we've been talking about it emerging for a long time now. Now we're seeing Google, J&J, Medtronic make a, made a deal. All the strategic are lining up behind this technology. Smith & Nephew, I heard, acquired a company. Um, is this, where are we with medical robotics? Is this like your parents being on Facebook? Like, you know, now that all the strategics are doing it, it's no longer emerging or a place for investors and entrepreneurs to look for opportunities? Or is this still a, a, a nascent industry that, uh, that requires the work of entrepreneurs and, and investors? Uh, why don't we start here, Paul? You've you're got dual roles. And in your answers, we, we, we've got the bios on PitchBook. You can look those up. But tell us a bit about the companies that you're sort of representing and what their approach to robotics is. I think that would be helpful. Sure, Tom. Uh, so this is Paul LaViolette, and I represent, by way of uh, my board role and investment role, uh, Transenterics, which is a two-platform uh, general surgery robotics uh, company. I think it's still nascent. Uh, without a doubt, you can look at the compelling role that Intuitive has played in, in building out a robotics industry, and there have been others. Certainly, orthopedics is, is an area of, of uh, great promise. Uh, but when you look at uh, what percent of all procedures are not yet penetrated or converted, how many are done either laparoscopically or by open surgery in comparison to robotic or robotic-assisted, uh, it is still very much underpenetrated. Uh, you could look at the technologies and say they're fundamentally still early generation. And certainly when you look at the value propositions being proposed by some of the up-and-coming technology companies, they offer a lot of uh, potential improvement, uh, more sophistication, easier for for, uh, customer assimilation, more cost-effectiveness, more integration into the healthcare system. So there's a long way to go, and therefore, by definition, I would say we're still nascent. 
And Eric, you, you've uh, had some success with, uh, with Blue Belt. You can talk about that. You'll be unemployed in two days. I'm very sorry to hear that. Uh, Available. <laughs> uh, maybe you can talk about Blue Belt and you as an entrepreneur who's going back out in the field. How do you view this, this area? Yeah, I, I truly agree with Paul. I think, uh, I think it's still at an early stage. I think there's a couple key components. One, we were, we were fortunate to be a fast follower uh, to Mako Surgical. Mako was acquired by Stryker for a billion seven. Uh, we firmly believed out of the gate that we had better technology for a couple different reasons. One, ours was a handheld robotic instrument and enabling technology, which wasn't driven by a big behemoth of a, of a device and, and had a robotic arm that the physician held onto. Ours was a handheld. We let the surgeon drive the robot instead of the robot driving the surgeon. Uh, that resonated very well in the uh, orthopedic market because if you think about it, these guys are carpenters in a sense. They use hammers and saws. So they loved that aspect of it. And, and the other thing about being a fast follower is we were able to look at all of the other, as we would say, issues with the devices that are out there. The expense of a, of a Mako system or an intuitive system that's a million, two, million, five. Uh, our system, we, we, we penetrated the market at $450,000. And we did really well, not only because we were in the teaching institutions at 450, but then we went to the community hospitals. Then we took it to the outpatient settings where, you know, bundled reimbursement and all of these things that are key talking points really helped us benefit. So as I look at robotics going forward, I, I, I still believe that it has to do two things. One is you have to have compelling data. You have to make the surgeon better, extend their career, or do something that gives them an edge. The other piece of this is the marketing piece. If you look at what's going on all over the country, you've got robotic institutes for orthopedics popping up, for general surgery popping up. I, I think that's significant as well, and I think as long as that continues to happen. And, and the third piece is you have to be at least time consistent with the with the, the the manual application if you're adding time or adding you know things that that make the procedure you know more difficult or more expensive it's never going to fly mm -hmm. john tell us about vitronis and how you sort of fit into the the doctor's existing workflow yeah thank you tom so fundamentally we view robotics as two broad categories the biggest one is uh, you know, the intuitive surgicals of the world that really change the entire procedure and involve a big investment by the hospital and a new workflow paradigm, if you will. We see ourselves as part of the second category, which is more incremental robotics, where we fit by and large into the existing workflow, and we make the physician's life easier, less stressful, with targeted robotic application in the field, in this case, of atrial fibrillation. So um, if we look at our field, 80% of the procedures are done by people who do fewer than 25 procedures a year. 10% are done by people who do between 25 and 50, and the other 10% by the experts in the field who do more than 50 procedures a year. So we see our technology as an opportunity to really democratize electrophysiology and make it accessible to more and more physicians who are either not doing it today, and about a third of electrophysiologists don't do any uh, ablations, um, or make their life easier by reducing the stress factor during the procedure. That's a great point. I was just going to add on to that point. So we, we did a lot of studies based on what John was just saying. And when we brought a, a um, Navio, which is our robotic instrument, into a hospital to, for somebody to start doing uh, uni knees or partial knee replacements, 
we also watched the implants of their total knee replacements and their total hip replacements go up because that patient was Googling, I need a knee replacement, who do I go to? Found a doctor that had you know, a, a robotic tool. Well, all of a sudden, they weren't qualified for a uni, so they ended up getting a total knee uh, uh, a great deal of the time. And because they had Googled that physician, found out he used robotics, his practice went through the roof. And when Smith & Nephew was evaluating that piece of the puzzle for us, we were able to show them the significant amount of physicians that improve their implant use across the board. And I would like to, you each have microphones. If you want to talk to each other, I won't be, I won't be offended. Um, who is demanding the, the robotics? I mean, we talk about the, the physicians, the doc, doc, democratization of, of surgeons. Is that something that they want? Is that something that surgeons want? Do they want to, to have something other than their skill in their own hands really decide uh, their practice and to... to, to well, it's a great, I think it's a great question. I'll just start off. I think certainly if you go to a, a major OR today and you see a major surgeon who's no, not robotic, he's not saying he needs it. Yeah. He's saying, I'm fine without it. Um, and listen, there is a... Uh, one of the things we have to talk about is the, is the learning curve, uh, the training investment uh, that's required. Uh, and there are some who really aren't willing to do that or who have not seen sufficient value in the offering uh, in the form of, of definitive changes and outcomes to say that I'm willing to commit my surgical life, my surgical practice, to becoming a robotic surgeon. So without a doubt, that's a reason why this is still early in, in development. On the other hand, to answer the question specifically, a lot of patients are driving this. There's this sense, and it is not necessarily... Uh, documented well or supported by clinical evidence, but there is this sense that robotic surgery will give me a better outcome. A number of physicians, and this is clearly demonstrated by those who have already become adopters, are saying this does make me a better practitioner. This does uh, limit my strain. It does extend my skill set. It may make my my life as a surgeon longer, um, and those are all things that they want uh, to, uh, to have going for them. So starts with, in my view, uh, patient-driven, surgeon-driven, and then ultimately the, the hospital setting, I think, has been more in response to those two drivers rather than on the front end. The smart early adopters have turned it into a marketing uh, weapon, uh, but no, when, they, when hospitals think about the initial uh, cost and then the long-term cost-effectiveness of the technology, uh, I would say the chief financial officer is generally the last person uh, to become a convert to robotics. John, with Vetronis, the marketing probably doesn't come into play. Who is who's demanding your product? Yeah, very true. The marketing has not yet come into play because we're not commercial. Yeah. Well, that would, that would, but at the same prevent, time, yes. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, you know, when we looked at the marketplace and we spoke with a lot of electrophysiologists, you, you usually don't find a person who says, I really am not good at what I do and I could use all the help from robotics. Um, just like what unites us all is that we all think we're above average drivers, right? So... <laughs> I am. <laughs> from Boston. <laughs> yeah. Need I say more? So, but at the same time, uh, it's, it's very, very clear that uh, the creme de la creme believe they don't need any help. And one of our worries was how could we appeal to them? And the appeal for them actually, as they reflect back to us, is I, after a two or three procedure day, my brain is fried. Mm -hmm. You know, the concentration factor, the intensity of the procedures is so high that they're very, very tired. So the experts welcome the relief, uh, the stress relief that the robotics enables. And the people who don't do the procedures a lot welcome the ability to do the procedures just as well as the experts. And Eric, in, in, with Blue Belt, the, the orthopedics are more open to 
having this assistance? They saw it other than the marketing ability. They saw it as something that would help. Yeah, them I think without a doubt. Them. I think, again, when you look at Minnesota is a great example, actually, because we're such a conservative state. Um, there was not a, a orthopedic robotic in, uh, robot in the state of Minnesota, and I think this year we've put five in already just mm -hmm. because the first one fell, and now all the community hospitals around the first one have jumped into the fray and said, I have to have this marketing tool. But I also think, um, as we always said with our system, and John's point is right on target, you know, at the end of the day, you've done four or five knees, and you're, you're shaving bone and sawing, and you can make mistakes. And so what our system did was it allowed you to color within between the lines. And, you know, if you did it great on your own, God bless you. But if you, if you veered off course and were making a mistake, we help protect you. And that extends careers. That extends, you know, uh, obviously patient satisfaction rates and all of those things that are really important. So is it really just a matter of getting that first hospital to get the system in and that sort of a domino after that? Yeah, actually, our, our key sales tactic is if, if Mako sells when we go to the hospitals within that five-mile radius and, and load them up. Really? Yeah. yeah. And how do the hospital administrators feel about that? They have no choice, yeah. in a sense, because they'll lose those patients because, again, it's an educated patient because of Google and everything else going on. They're going to lose those patients unless maybe the doctor's done their other knee. But, but for the most part... You know, that patient's going to say, hey, I, I, I want to know what you do in robotics. Where can I go? I think that's a major dynamic. The, yeah. the, obviously, if you look at the major uh, seminal systems, whether it's Mako or Intuitive, uh, they have a very high price point. They've, they've had to build the entire penetration curve. They've done that extremely well. Uh, but, that, but the number of centers that don't have them uh, still exceed by far the number of centers that do. And so it's a combination of getting that domino effect uh, going as well as creating a, d a differentiated price point so that not every major institution with 12 ORs uh, it becomes the customer, but rather ultimately smaller hospitals where surgeons may be in more need of that democratizing mm -hmm. um, advantage of the technology. And then ultimately, over time, all the way out into ambulatory surgery centers where so many procedures are done today. And again, uh, they don't benefit from concentrated volume and, and super highly uh, skilled practitioners. What, what makes patients think that robotic technology is so good? I mean... Is the clinical evidence there to show that you'll get a much better, much better performance out of a knee done with a robot than not? Or is it just, I mean, I don't want a self-driving car for that very reason. It just terrifies me. I don't know if I want a self-driving surgeon to put a knee on it. I know we're taking it to a ridiculous extreme, but what is it about robotic technology that's so appealing to patients? I think there's two things. One is, you know, again, we, we have somebody that's watching TV and they see the Toyota commercial where the, where the robot picks up the car and, and builds the car from scratch. Mm -hmm. That's not what we do, right? right? We're, we're robotic assist. Um, but that's what they think, and that's the perception. And if, and if we can build a car with a robot, surely my doctor should be doing, doing a robot on my knee, a robotic procedure on my knee versus using a saw and a hammer. Mm -hmm. So I think that's point one. Point two is the data is important. And if you started to look at the data in partial knee replacements especially, which is a very, very difficult procedure, our data was very, very compelling. And when you start to show that physician, you know, in his first take, uh, 10 cases, the improvement over his last 25 manual cases, it, it starts to open eyes and tur turn heads. Mm -hmm. and John, that, that, that your robot, your system is actually is kind of like that, that car, the robotic in the car, because it, it's, it's, re it's taking over something that's, unpleasant and even dangerous to do sometimes. So just to be clear, what we focus on to do robotically is something that is challenging or tedious or more difficult to do for the physician, but they do what is 
much easier for a human to do than any today's robot, which is access the, the vasculature across the septum. And once they're inside the heart, that's when our technology comes in to make their life easier. Um, from the patient perspective, as they learn more about this over time, it's exactly what, what Eric said. Uh, the, the clear perception and with lots of evidence to back it up that robots can be more precise. Right? Uh, for example, in terms of human hand steadiness, roughly 100 micron precision is, is quite good. Uh, our technology can be 10 to 15 microns precise mm -hmm. in terms of movement per second. Um, in terms of the fatigue factor, you know, people intuitively understand a robot is not going to get tired. It's not going to get distracted, perhaps, right? So um, those factors come into play in terms of the, the appeal. Um, in our space specifically, there's another big plus for the physician as well, is that um, by doing a lot of the work on the workstation away from the x-ray field, you can reduce x-ray exposure significantly. So floor times typically in the procedures today are 15 to 25 minutes uh, on a good day, and they, they could be below five or three minutes with our technology. We're going to take a quick break from this uh, conversation from our uh, MedTech conference to remind you to go to the MedTech conference dot com website not only to check the uh, new content that's coming out from the medtech conference but also to sign up for the medtech talk email if you haven't signed up yet just go on uh, medtechconference.com look for uh, the uh, opportunity to, to sign up for the email we'll just need your address and each week you'll get this podcast our uh, video content from our conferences and other conferences we attend and also our original written content so uh, we hope you sign up and join the MedTech Talk family. Now back to this conversation. Uh, and how is this technology being viewed by the payers? We need obviously to talk about the payers. Is, is there concern? Are they paying any more for, the, for procedures done with robotics? Uh, or do they view every robotics company the same? Uh, what is the view from the reimbursement side of things? I don't know, Paul, if you have I don't think that. they view every robotics company the same because really they're, we're talking entirely different fields. Right. If you look at it from the payment perspective, AFib is a different DRG than a total knee, is a different DRG than a, a lap coli. So I, I don't think they see them uh, that way. I do think there is a larger cloud over the space, which is to your earlier question about uh, data, not whether or not there is data that, that show outcomes are at least as good, if not better, and in many cases they are better, but then layering in cost-effectiveness and how much more am I paying for that slight improvement in, in outcomes. So I think the controversy over time and where the greatest benefits are still yet to come in robotics uh, will ultimately be showing that the speed, the efficiency of the procedure can be married in with the clinical benefit to create a, a clinical and cost uh, benefit, which which I would say is still in the controversial space today, and I think in orthopedics in general is is if you have a total knee or a partial knee put in and it's put in just a hair off. I mean, your patient satisfaction rate is terrible, and so most of the time that patient will go in for a revision, and a revision knee is one of the most expensive procedures in 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 the hospital now, and so you know just reducing the amount of those procedures is significant from a cost payer side. And have you had interactions with reimbursement? Uh, with we have. We, you know, and, and candidly, we, we'd love to see, and, and working with our, our, our friends on the other side, but, but in conjunction, a robotic code that allows for better reimbursement because there is some cost to it, as we all know. But as you start to think about moving this to an outpatient procedure, which a lot of physicians are doing this manually, this would be the better way to do it so you get better satisfaction results. 
So in, in our case, the reimbursement, thankfully, in the AFib space is very healthy. So um, that's not a big factor because we're also not changing the workflow or the, the we're not requiring extra capital equipment investment up front. Mm -hmm. So it's really similar to what they're used to, which is a disposables-based uh, model. Over time, one of the exciting things that we see is the opportunity to change the workflow from today, basically, an EP lab that's dedicated um, with the, the expert physician with their support staff doing one procedure to potentially migrating to the way of the cath lab, which is a control room with multiple procedures going on, and the main expert really participating in only the most challenging part of the procedure and rotating rooms, if you will, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to being in the procedure the entire time. So that's certainly an efficiency and opportunity for savings. I think it, it comes back, though, to the notion that robotics are not for everyone or everything right now. And if you think about the, the uh, comment that Eric just made about potentially avoiding the need for a, a repeat intervention, that's extremely demonstrable, and when you can show it, it's really impressive, and that's a great, that's a great entry point, if you will, for robotics. If you go to the opposite end of the most common high-volume, high-throughput procedures in the OR, and say, okay, well, there's, there's a chance with robotics I might slightly improve the outcome, although that may be difficult to show for a while, but I will slow down the procedure and I will increase the time between cases for changeover. Mm -hmm. I think the average OR would look at that and say, there's no way I'm bringing that in. Right. And so you have to be really careful about picking your targets and saying, this one is, this one is susceptible to be improved with robotics. These are not, and, and obviously, therefore, don't, don't go there. Let's talk about another important stakeholder, the FDA. Uh, John, where are you in your interaction with the FDA, and, and how do they view your, your technology? Yeah, we've had um, some good early interactions with the FDA, including face-to-face uh, -face meetings, and um, their feedback is very interesting. They, they do view robotics as a higher bar, um, but once they got to understand our technology and the incremental approach to it and the fact that still the physician has uh, all the control they need, um, they even advised us to stay away from the word robotics and use more computer-assisted or other terminology just because uh, to avoid getting potentially um, hot water with exaggerated perception of what the system does on its own, mm -hmm. so to speak, without that, uh, the human uh, input or ability to override. Uh, that's, I, mean, that's I mean, that's the FDA, I mean, where, where some, that kind of hysteria, that wouldn't, wouldn't, not hysteria, but the fact that the term robotics would, would be a negative buzzword, uh, is that a, a broader concern in robotics, that, that applying that label to a company or a technology uh, brings just a, a higher bar to clear, a higher burden to... I don't think there's any question. It, it's a complex piece of technology. Mm -hmm. And so if you are... If you're going into the FDA with a with a uh, you know a laparoscopic tool versus a surgical robot, there's a fundamental difference in the size of that submission. A little bit, uh, and and yet the uh, technologies in the end are intended to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think they're number one. Number two, bear in mind these are, for, uh, with the exception of an AFib indication, these are for the most part class two devices. Class two um, uh, that class two pathway through the FDA is obviously not the most heavily resourced, uh, and, and there can be a mismatch between the scale of the submission and the resources on the reviewing end, and that can create 
you know, I would say some do loops in the process mm -hmm. that you might not find with a with a uh, submission that was more proportionate uh, to the indication. So there is complexity associated with it. I, at the uh, on the other end of that, however, I would say FDA appreciates that they're trying to get better at it. They understand this is a this is the beginning of the wave, and they're going to see a lot more of these coming. And I think they're gearing up for that, but it's not a perfectly smooth process. And you, yeah. and you had uh, recently with Transenterics had some some news. I would say FDA. it wasn't perfectly smooth. <laughs> uh, and so yes, Transenterics submitted a 510K uh, with an existing uh, predicate uh, technology, class two uh, device, and and a no no clinical required uh, submission. It was turned down. Um, I personally feel that uh, that ultimately can be uh, redressed, uh, but that's part of the learning process uh, that we're going through. And will that be redressed? Are you? Uh, I, I said I think it can be. Okay. Yeah. You shoot it. And I would add one or two comments. One is uh, the, the the blue belt path through FDA was was I don't want to say simple, but it was it was fairly straightforward. Uh, I will tell you that the the group in orthopedics has great robotic experience. They're tenured. They'd been around for a long time, so they knew the questions to ask based on. Mako Surgical, based on uh, a company called Robodoc uh, that was around years ago. So, so, so they helped us navigate through. And again, same thing as John said, we used computer-assisted surgery or robotic-assisted. We didn't use robotic technology. But, but then it goes to the, the physician. The technology I mentioned is, is an actual robot that you press a button and it comes in and it does a knee procedure and the physician stands in the back and talks to his broker or the scrub nurse. <laughs> and, uh, and they've sold none right? Because nobody wants to have that risk. So they just added a stop button. So now he stands there and holds a stop button in case something goes wrong. Well, he still has, they still haven't sold any. Mm -hmm. And again, I think that goes to the acceptance in the marketplace. Who wants that? You go through years and years and years of training to press a button or now maybe two buttons and it just doesn't fly. Fascinating. Let's look at the, the, the we're talking a bit about the payers and about FDA, but let's talk about the business itself. We've seen some stories lately um, of some, some legacy robotics companies uh, Intuitive's uh, obviously doing well, but it's it's not been a. Uh, there's been some bumps in, it, in its ride. Uh, Hanson was acquired recently for a, a lower amount than I think people would have hoped. Stereotaxis has had some trouble. Catheter Robotics has had some trouble. The early goers in this space have had a hard time. Uh, is that are there lessons from those experiences that have been learned in the the second group? Uh, Intuitive perhaps standing up. Counting success, will the second crop of robotics companies coming in be stronger because of what's happened previously? I don't know, Paul, if you have a thought on that. Well, yeah, it's a very mixed bag, um, but I don't know that you can throw them all together and draw a conclusion. Listen, Intuitive uh, made the market. It took them a while to find their, as they would say, their, their killer app. Subsequent to that, it's been one of the, the greatest success stories in the history of the medical technology industry. So I, I'd say that's anyone from Intuitive or at Intuitive would say, yeah, it's, it's working well. <laughs> We're not complaining. Yeah. Um, if you compare that to a stereotaxis uh, or a catheter robotics, extremely different um, targets, value propositions. And I think you just have to, you really have to roll those back and say, what were they intending to do to begin with? Were those well-targeted? Were those well-defined? Uh, well and, and, um, and were they likely to be successful from the, from the outset? Uh, that can be debated. Of course, we'll never know. Uh, we can only see that through uh, hindsight. I, I, I would say the next generation, we're already seeing mm -hmm. examples of that with, with Blue Bell as an example uh, and, and, of course, uh, Mako um, uh, prior to them. The, the, there are successes happening now, 
and I think those successes will far outpace uh, the, the, the failures. I think the market is getting it right. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And fundamentally, there's no question, no matter how you look at it, uh, robotics is very capital-intensive, right? So even if you have an incremental robotics technology, it still takes a lot of time and money to develop it to the point where it's ready for the marketplace. And one of the challenges that companies, I think, have faced is... Um, Put getting under pressure to start having sales and revenue to start paying for that R&D, which means you get burdened with installed base and uh, customer maintenance challenges before you have really, really finished the product. So that's uh, one of the lessons learned. So uh, obviously, if you're you know, Google J&J with Verb and uh, capital is almost unlimited, you can certainly aim very high and do comprehensive systems. But it seems to us that the trend is going to be more toward you know, incremental robotics applications that really don't try to replace the human, but try to do what the human does, certain aspects of that, better, faster, more reproducibly, um, and so on. And I think that, you know, remember, it wasn't that long ago, maybe five years, that we were justifying the use of robotics in, in procedures, right? Intuitive was was doing well, but but really that was it. So now it was, do we bring these expensive technologies in? I don't think we have to justify the use of robotics now. What we have to justify is the use of the right application, the application that's difficult, the application that has improved clinical results, the application that's efficient, not just start throwing things at walls like some of the robotics companies that are out there doing today uh, and see if if it sticks, then you're going to try to go out and sell it to the market because it'll never fly. So, Paul, as as a VC... You could see robotics as being one of those big-ticket items that isn't necessarily in vogue as we try to be less capital-intensive. However, there are ways to do it where you're, you're very targeted in the use of robotics. Is that a space that you're – is it a technology you're still looking to make investments? Well, we, we obviously are an active investor with Transenterics, but as an example of its capital intensity, we did a, re, we did a reverse merger and then an uplisting to the New York Stock Exchange, and now we raise money on the public – uh, through the public markets because that's the kind of platform that it's unlikely you could start today and bring all the way through on VC backing alone. I gave uh, Scott Hennekins a, a hard time uh, because he's running a startup, but the combined market cap of his two sponsors is $897 billion, <laughs> and somehow he's making it work. Um, but the, listen, it doesn't take that kind of capital, but that that may be only barely sufficient for what, uh, you know, their mission is. So it is capital intensive. It's very difficult to find, I think, the perfect match between that mission and a venture-backed approach. Uh, It may require strategic uh, partnering uh, early on, and certainly many of the strategics are making bets. Mm -hmm. I think that's indicative of the space and the capital requirements. Yeah, let's talk about the the appetite of the the strategics. Uh, Eric, do you see, like, a deal like Medtronic Maser? Is that something that you say, go, great, there we go. We, we see some interest from, from a, a strategic like Medtronic, or does it close doors in a way? And, and, and yeah, so, you know, my, my personal take is it was interesting, and it was an interesting decision to go that route from both sides, right? Um, you know, obviously, Mazur needs, uh, needs some investment, and, uh, and, and now you've got a partner that's going to throw a bunch of units uh, out into the field, which I think is good. That locks them out, though, now, right? So I don't know what happens and, and, and where they can go from here. But I do know that, again, where they sit right now, that looks pretty good on paper probably because, as John said, it's, it's a very capital-intensive research and, and, and development investment that needs to keep moving to, to better the technology. So, you know, let's hope it works. And, John, final question. Yeah. Do, you, do you see a number of potential exit opportunities in this growing field of strategics? We do. We do. The space... Um 
is, is not unlimited because it takes a lot of capital just to even get into the atrial fibrillation market. But uh, there's definitely um, a lot of interest in this technology because it's not just technology for technology's sake, it's really solving real-world problems, right? And so um, making the doctor's life easier, making the procedures more reproducible, expanding the market by letting more physicians being able to use the technology are all logical, attractive things that strategics care about. Terrific. So... And with that, we'll wrap up, and I'll say thank you for, uh, for joining the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Well, that was our robotics panel. I hope you enjoyed uh, that conversation. It certainly still remains an exciting uh, technology, one that's uh, evolving as we, uh, as we speak, and uh, will be uh, interesting to watch going forward. Thank you to everyone who attended the MedTech conference uh, on Wednesday. We uh, heard so many kind words from folks who really uh, found it to be uh, almost a, a testimony to uh, how MedTech is surviving and thriving. Uh, the, the mood was very upbeat, and uh, that was because we had many people in the room who were simply finding ways to get the job done. So thank you to everyone who came out, our panelists. Uh, thank you to our, uh, our facilitators for keeping us on track. And a thanks, of course, to our co-chairs uh, and our advisory boards, our co-chairs, Justin Klein and Kevin Hikes, uh, they did an outstanding job. And uh, as I announced at the, uh, the panel uh, at the end of the day yesterday, which we'll have up on medtechconference.com, very happy to be joined next year by uh, Stacey Enzing-Seng of Lightstone. She will be our new co-chair along with Kevin Hikes. And uh, we're already plotting uh, our next event. So please uh, sign up for the MedTech Talk podcast. Keep listening to this podcast. And uh, tune in next week for another tale of innovation. Take care.